Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What do you want? Your ship, your spore drive, and your crew as leverage. Oh, no. Not going to happen. You will not take this ship or anyone on it. Not now. Not ever. No. I'm ready to get into this episode and talk about the latest episode of Discovery. I've got my big boy pants on. Be captain of this episode, Dan. (laughs) I'm taking control. I'm ready to fire on all cylinders. Let's do this. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, This was, yeah, I'm always excited to talk about Star Trek Discovery. But this one in particular, I think there's some interesting things to discuss for this episode. Ooh, yes, there are. Welcome, everyone, to Positively Trek. We're going to talk about... Star Trek Discovery, episode 11 from season three, Sakal. And Dan, Gunther's here. I'm Bruce Gibson. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm not too bad. It's uh, We're recording this uh, the day after Christmas. So in Canada, where I'm from, Boxing Day, it's known as. So, you know, it's, it's actually quiet outside the house right now. There's no like big semi trucks rushing past the house on the big main road that we have nearby. Uh, so I have no, I have no worries about the sound quality of my audio for once. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's times where we record and you're like, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Some truck goes by. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully that won't happen, you know, but uh, maybe Santa Claus is running a little late on some gifts and he might be coming by and Jingle Bells will be playing in the background. Oh, there you go. We'll hear the the light tapping of tiny hooves on the roof or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I say that we get into it before Santa shows up. And uh, <laughs> was Santa good to you this year, Dan, by the way? Santa was pretty good to me this year. Absolutely. I, I had a wonderful Christmas. A little hard not being able to get together with uh, family and that sort of thing. But Nikki and I had a nice, quiet Christmas here at home. And, and it was actually really lovely. Our first uh, Christmas as a married couple. So definitely a memorable one. <laughs> not a not a typical Christmas in uh, many respects. Yeah, th- that's a good point. I forgot that. Yeah, this is your first Christmas married together. So that's great. You know, when Christmas Eve arrived, I was so excited. <gasps> it's Christmas Eve. I got up and my family's there. I'm like, do you guys know what today is? And they're like, yeah, it's Christmas Eve. I'm like, no, it's a new episode of Discovery <laughs> that I can watch right now. <laughs> Yeah, we know the priorities. We know what the priorities are, for sure. We've got them straight. (laughs) Yes. So let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, Sukal is the name of the episodes. As I mentioned before, this is Season 3, Episode 11. So let's start off with talking about, well, first of all, spoilers, everyone. We're going straight into it. Spoilers up front. So if you haven't watched this episode and you don't want to be spoiled then go listen to our next episode. So with this one, we have a ship that I want to talk about, the Kieth, 
And this is the ship that was the Kelpian Federation ship that is stranded in this nebula. And Dr. Issa is on here. And remember in the previous episode where they saw the holographic image of her talking and Tilly made the comment about her head, the markings on her head saying, oh, the radiation was really getting to her. Well, we come to find out in this episode, Saru informs us that that's not what that was. It means that she was pregnant. So 120 years earlier, she was pregnant with the child. And the reason he mentioned this is because they detected a life sign from the ship. And they're like, how could there be a life sign on the ship? And he's like, it's got to be the child. And I thought, Grogu from The Mandalorian is on the ship? The child? <laughs> Baby Yoda? No, no. That would have been an interesting twist, though. Uh, interesting crossover. But uh, yeah, no. I thought this was interesting that uh, that's what these indications meant. And Saru, uh, you know, wasn't covering it up, I guess, but, you know, didn't volunteer that information, but kind of just stored that away and you know, for this, this kind of revelation. So this idea, and, and I don't think we've ever gotten any indication of Kelpian lifespans before, have we? No, I don't think we have, no. Mm -hmm. So apparently they, they live for quite a while. So 120 years and, and we meet this child later in the episode and he's, you know, I'd say he looks Saru-ish. Like he doesn't look, we see a Kelpian elder as well in holographic form and, and he looks very old. So uh, 120 years and this guy looks at most middle-aged could be, uh, you know, could have very long lifespans. Yeah, definitely. I hadn't even really thought about that, but it does seem like a lot of the aliens in Star Trek have long lifespans. Have you noticed that? Yeah, us humans really got the short end of the stick. I mean, you know, I, I guess we can't complain. We're not the Ocampa, but, <laughs> you know, a lot of alien races out there seem to live hundreds of years. So, uh, you know, they decide they're going to go onto the ship to find out this, what this life sign is all about. And so we have Colbert, Saru, and Burnham beaming over. And when they get there, it looks like they're on a planet. And not only that, but they don't even look like themselves. They are different species of themselves, and they don't even have their uniforms on. They have different clothing on. And so Burnham is actually Trill. Colbert is Bajoran. And then Saru walks up and they're just like, their mouths are just hanging open because he's human. And they were like, oh my gosh, you look just like Doug Jones, the actor <laughs> from the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, this was a, a bit of a jaw-dropping moment. I loved that. I thought that was really, really cool that Saru appears as a human. And I was reading an interview with Doug Jones about this particular episode and you know, the challenge of, you know, even though he looks human and he doesn't have all those all of those prosthetics, and especially according to him, he doesn't have the, the hoof feet, which was really the biggest thing, was kind of figuring out how Saru moves and he still looks like Saru, but he has to walk on, you know, his own regular human feet and without all this, you know, prosthetic to act through, so... I thought he did an amazing job channeling uh, Saru and and his expressions and and mannerisms, but without the the makeup, made it look really really interesting. Yeah, I noticed how subtle he was in certain movements that looked like Saru with without being too overtly Saru because it mm. would be a little weird. like just like you said the way he walked and his arms moving, but they weren't they were just more subtle just so it still looked like he was walking as a human kind of Kelpian 
slash whatever. So yeah, I thought that was really cool too. And to see him without his makeup on, of course, I'm thinking, oh wow, he was probably excited to show up to work that day because he could probably come in a little later than usual. <laughs> to get all that on. <laughs> yeah. I did notice they had a, a rather well-tailored hairpiece for him though, because he actually, he shaves his head to play Saru apparently for ease of, of the prosthetic makeup. So he had this nice kind of shock of, of brown, light brown hair that, you know, this is kind of rocking that style, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they let him keep it. Maybe we'll see him on a panel wearing that hair someday. <laughs> but now they start exploring where they are because they start to realize this has got to be some kind of like hollow suite of some type. These are all holograms because if they were on the planet, they would be dead with radiation, Culver said, like almost immediately. So they, they have to be on the ship. And so then they realize the way they look, it's because of a holographic projection of themselves. And so then they start exploring where they are and they go into this area where there's all these like stairways and these flying creatures, which I thought was cool, flying out in the sky and these weird sounds. It was kind of spooky and mysterious. And we see this door that's got these like chains and things around and like a bone in the handles or something there that was blocking it. And, the, and something's banging on the door and it's referred to as the monster as we join this. Mm -hmm. So Dan, I'm just curious when we were really getting into this ship and this environment, what were your thoughts about it? Did you think when they beamed down that they were on the ship or on a different planet or what did you think initially what was going on? Initially I was honestly, I just had no idea what was going on, but yeah, this environment is really, really cool. I love the MC Escher looking stairs and I know they don't go like MC Escher ones, but that's what I first thought when they, they showed them. Uh, and then to see, yeah, like you said, the Gormaganders all flying around in the sky. It was nice to see them again. You know, I, and I know it's, you know, just the environment and all that stuff, but I, I, I would have been okay with maybe Culber or Burnham going like, ooh, cool, Gormaganders and pointing up <laughs> at the sky because that's what I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. Look at all this stuff. <laughs> I did expect more of a reaction from them. They just kind of look over like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, like i see this almost every other day yeah well as they're exploring and before you know they do find this child which we'll get into here in a moment but they also explore the area and find different holographic representations of different situations so for example we see an instructor teaching about replicators and i thought you know this is the problem sometimes when the screen's a little dark and i needed to get to a place where i could really look at this i was a little confused was that instructor wearing a discovery like uniform so it's a jacket but some of the like elements on it look discovery-ish she's got the tng badge and it looks like she's got an enterprise era patch on her shoulder which i never noticed before so yeah i guess it's a it may be a program that has been updated over time that has existed maybe for centuries and it's just a mix of different uniforms of different eras oh i guess because of the malfunctions maybe it has something to do with the malfunctions it's just all mixing it up you can customize it for different uniforms and stuff and it just kind of went ah, and spat out a bunch of random stuff <laughs> yeah i just thought it was really weird when i saw it i was like wait i'm confused why would there be a program from the 23rd century about replicators and then I thought about it again. And then, I, like you said, I was like, wait, but the badge looks like it's TNG. I was like, I'm confused. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it's cool. I think it's an interesting choice. My my guess now looking at it close is, yeah, they 
you can customize it for a bunch of different eras of uniforms if you want or whatever, but it just, the malfunctions are making it all jumbled together. I don't know if that's even close to what they were going for, but I'm like, ah, that kind of works for me. Well, that would make sense because, I mean, I can't imagine the Federation having a program that has somebody in a uniform that's a mix of different uniform from uniforms from centuries ago, just about replicators. Yeah, <laughs> and, unless it was like part of the program, it's like find these 10 mistakes or something. It's like the nerd search book, but holographic form. Uh, the Enterprise era patch, and I'm pretty sure that's what that is on her shoulder, I think is a really cool uh, addition here. But Yeah, that is cool. Unless also maybe the instructor, this hollow instructor was showing how to use a replicator and said, look, I replicated a uniform with different things from different eras. But anyway, we go to, there's another scene also I thought was cool was the uh, was Kaminar joining the Federation. Mm -hmm. I mean, how exciting was that for Saru to see that? But for us too, again, different uniforms from whatever time period that that occurred. But then the Vulcan officer is interacting with Colber and Saru about why they're there. You here to rescue the child. I thought that was a great scene too. Yeah, I really like that scene. So yeah, the uniforms look to be from the era of... Uh, Admiral Senatal, they have the same badge uh, that he had. So, you know, a couple, a hundred years, maybe a couple, I don't know, but uh, fairly recent-ish. Uh, but yeah, I love this scene also because of the the weird interaction with the Vulcan officer. And it was like he was following a dialogue tree in a computer program. If people, you know, know how that works in video games and stuff, like it's an if then kind of situation. So if they say this, then your response is this, but we're kind of hearing what's going on in the background behind that, like query expected answers. Yes, no, if yes, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. I thought that was really cool. And does the child have a name? And it's like, eh, eh, eh. like you can't even answer. Yeah. If the child has a name. I'm like, it's Grogu, people. I've been hearing about this for months. The child is... No, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's Star Wars, the Mandalorian. I'm just used to the child being Grogu now. But now we've got Sakal. That's the child here in Discovery. And this hollow environment was created by his mother shortly before she died to help protect him. And so the ship and this hollow program are protecting him from all the radiation that's going on in this nebula. And I mean, I think there's some radiation still coming in, but it's just, you know, it's a very small amount that he's able to live through it. But we find out a little later, and I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but he's kind of adapted to it mm -hmm. also. He is afraid of the, quote, outside, because when Saru introduces themselves, he says, we're from the outside. And he's like, oh, the outside, you know. And I was thinking at that point that was strictly about the monster in in Sakal's mind, but it's a little more than that. So he is emotionally fragile because he's still a child. He wasn't raised by adults. His environment's going to be different. And, and Burnham and Colbert point that out to Saru that, you know, you've got to treat him like a child, even though he's an adult, like to your point, Dan, he's over 120 years old, but his situation's a lot different from ours. This was a really interesting character to get to know and played very well by the actor as well, who apparently has experience as a as a clown or something like that. So, you know, very, very experienced with movement and that kind of thing. That was part of the interview with Doug Jones. He was saying he had to do very little work with him to get the Kelpian mannerisms down because he had very much body awareness and, and stuff. But yeah, very interesting character, and I, I loved his performance 
I think uh, his interaction with Burnham especially was uh, one of my absolute favorite things about the episode. But yeah, very afraid of the outside. The one thing I noted, and and there were some episode titles released a while ago. Uh, this episode was originally called The Citadel, but it has since changed to Sukal. So this may change as well. But the season finale of Discovery, the episode released was Outside. So this might be a story that's stretched through these last three episodes, uh, for quite a while, if if that is referring to the same outside that Sukal is so afraid of here. I think you're right. When my wife asked me about watching it with me, because I watched it without her because she was at work. So the second time I went to watch it was with her. And she asked me a little bit about, you know, is this a good episode or something to that effect? And I said, well, just so you know, it's not going to be this ending to an episode. To me, it felt like a part one of three. Like, we're leading up. This is really the setup that's leading up to the conclusion of the season, yeah. the finale. And it really does feel like a part one to this because there's a lot of open-ended things by the time we get to the end of this episode. Going back to what you were saying about Burnham and her interaction with him, I love how she realizes that he's scared and he's only used to a hollow environment that he asks about who she is and she introduces herself as being a hollow, that she is a program and she's going to teach the dynamics of social interaction, which, you know, in her younger years, she wasn't the best at social interaction. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I really enjoyed this scene. I thought Sinequa Martin-Green did a great job in this as well. And it's, it's a side of Burnham that is really fun to see. Uh, I really loved her interaction with this kid. And I, I was watching the uh, Trek culture review of this episode. And the the host of that show was saying that she acted very parental here. And it's like, like I said, a side of her that we've not seen. We know it's a side uh, that exists of Sinequa Martin-Green, but we haven't seen that in Burnham. And it was really, really cool to see a different aspect of her character here. I like how she also was able to reset herself in a sense, because when he says she she starts asking him about, does he remember a time when he was on a ship? Do you remember a time before this? And he gets really scared and he says, you know, reset parameters, reset parameters. And without a hitch, she just automatically realizes, oh, yeah, I need to act different. And then she acts like, hi, it's my first time talking to you again. And it's reset. But then when she starts asking him about exits and she wants to know how to reset all parameters, that's when he really starts to to freak out and, and run away. Mm -hmm. But I feel like she's on that delicate balance with him of trying to get through to him like, yeah, a parent to a child or a teacher to a child. And, and how do you get him to understand without him getting too scared? Because you don't necessarily know what his triggers are. Because yeah. he's in a very unique situation. Yeah, it was a really fun back and forth scene. And, you know, I, I don't know what Burnham could have done differently because she's desperately trying to figure out some some information that's going to help them and help rescue this this person. But, you know, like you said, you don't know what's going to trigger him. And, of course, uh, he is uh, triggered and, and runs away. I also liked earlier when she was dealing with, quote, the monster and she's running away from him and stuff. But she was standing her ground like, she, you know, of course, she's probably scared, but she has that rock and she slowly puts her arm down, drops the rock, trying to make friendship, showing that she's not a threat. And the monster is still not sure and then is, is going to attack her. But. Again, it's it's her trying her best to reach out without totally understanding the other beings 
situation and, and where they're coming from and trying to break through it, which is a very Star Trek thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely something that were I in the situation, I don't know that I'd have the strength to try and be peaceful towards this this monster that's, you know, coming after me. But I, I really admired that. I thought that was great. When that scene came up with the monster, my wife says, "Ooh, I think I know what this might be. And having already seen the episode, I was like, because wait, just so you know, in our family, we don't like my wife to say what she thinks is going to happen because a lot of times she gets it right and we think it's kind of spoilers. So we always say, be quiet. Don't, we don't want to know what you think. We don't want to know what you think is going to happen. But because I already saw the episode, I was like, so what, what do you think this monster is then? She's like, I think it's the child's mother, Hmm. which I hadn't thought about, but I could see where she's coming from. The mother's gone, but maybe not maybe she's evolved into this creature and is trying to get to her son but he's afraid of her huh which we know is not what happened but i thought that yeah. was interesting it's an interesting thought yeah if someone had suggested that to me at the time while i was watching it uh i, I could very easily think oh yeah that's probably where it's going i'm definitely not smart enough to think of something like that myself <laughs> no me either that's why we don't let my wife talk too much during shows because she usually is right <laughs> <laughs> At this time, she wasn't. So now I want to jump to Saru real quick before we go to what happens later in this episode with Sukal. But Saru, before they beam over, has a conversation with Admiral Vance, where Vance is talking to Saru that he's sending a fleet to Kaminar because it's being attacked. And Saru's first reaction, he is, oh, we can get our spore drive and, and go over there right now and help. It's like, no, you have this other mission. And Vance has got a fleet there. Of course, they're thinking it's got to be Osiris. She's got to be behind this. Mm-hmm. Trying to draw Saru and the Discovery out specifically. Yeah, Right. Fall into her trap, which they're not going to do. So then they, as we talked about, go over to the ship. But Burnham is concerned about Saru. She doesn't know if he'll be objective on this mission. I'm not so worried about Saru. I am a little and I'm a little not. What do you think? There were various parts in this episode I was a little bit concerned that he might get a little sidetracked. I think it's a valid thing and I think Burnham is uh you know doing her duty. She's not the first officer, but she's still an office a high-ranking officer under Saru's command and is noticing where Saru might have some blind spots that he's not aware of. So if if nothing else, bringing it to his attention and making him aware that this might occur, I think is a good thing. I'm a little bothered now with, uh, in this episode and I've, I've seen it here and there, but this one, it really came out again to me where I feel as if Burnham is really guiding Saru a lot as if, She's telling Saru, no, you need to do this. No, what we really need to be doing. I mean, that's really what an officer and a first officer, I know she's not first officer, but she was. I know that's what they should be doing. But it really starting to come across to me, not just with Burnham and Saru, but with Tilly and Saru, Colburn this episode and, and Saru. And maybe it is the compromise that Saru is having that he's not being objective and everybody keeps pointing out to him Things like, you know, oh, no, we should be doing it this way or no, you should be doing it that way. It just starts to bother me because it makes me feel as if Saru maybe really isn't ready for command. Do you ever feel that way? 
Like that's how they're setting this up. It, it feels like they might be moving in that direction. The one part in this episode that really made me feel that way. And we didn't talk a lot about before they get to the ship, but there's, there's quite a bit of episode that happens there. And when Saru is, is ordering the discovery through the nebula and the shields are, are very quickly going down and they're taking damage and he seems almost panicky. Like we've got to get there. We've got to get there right away without stopping to think of alternatives. And, you know, book comes up with an alternative. He's, he's got a ship he can scout ahead. And Saru, I think needed to take that time to really think the situation through and seems to be acting on instinct and a little bit of panic. You know, I think that's kind of the first indication and kind of feeds into what Burnham is telling him here. Uh, I hope they don't, I don't know. I I know they were setting up last episode with Giorgio telling Burnham, Saru's not the only one suited to the captain's chair and, you know, you can do this too and that sort of thing. I'd love to see Burnham succeed. I don't want it to be at the expense of Saru, unfortunately. I've seen some theories online and I kind of would appreciate maybe this direction more. Maybe Saru gets promoted to like an aide to Admiral Vance or something like that. And then Burnham gets discovery. I think that would be pretty cool, but I I hope this isn't like the fall of Saru because I don't want him to fail at being captain. Yeah. Cause I do feel like it's maybe going in that direction. Exactly to the point that you were saying in that scene where Book has the idea to take his ship. Burnham's like, Saru, we need to go. Like, hey, Saru, this, you know, and again, that could be one of those, well, he's emotionally compromised with the situation with the Kelpian. And we've heard Vance talk about, you know, I'm kind of worried about my captain. Is it, are you going to make this personal or is, are you like, we've gotten these little indications here and there. And there were earlier scenes, there were earlier episodes where we saw Tilly talking to Saru and saying, you know, you're doing a good job, you know, you're you're being a good captain. Yeah, you know, there's just all these things where I feel like people are either reassuring Saru that he can do the job or they're telling him, nope, you, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Because even when we're on the ship, it's Saru saying, OK, because remember, he's the captain. Burnham and Colbert, you're going back to the ship. And they're both like, no, we're not. No, you're staying here. Oh, OK. I mean, no, it wasn't quite like that. But again, I just feel as if everybody doesn't really take him that seriously sometimes. Hmm. I, I might have to watch it again with that in mind because I, I didn't necessarily get that impression. But I can, you know, thinking back on some things, I can definitely see that. And that's that's a little frustrating. Absolutely. But I mean, I also know he's a new captain. So the, it a lot of that also makes sense. But to your point earlier, I hope it, this isn't the fall of Saru. I'm hmm. really hoping, too, that that's not where they're going with this. That we get some, whatever happens at the end of all this, that we're happy with how they handle Saru. That being said, he does come upon an elder, a hologram of an elder, who is uh, the type of person that the elders on Kaminar that would sit around the fire and read stories or tell stories to preserve the Kaminar history, which I thought was also a great moment with Saru because he's enjoying this moment because a lot of the elders didn't live this long when he was there on Kaminar. Yeah, I thought that was a really kind of sobering thought when he said that. I was like, oh yeah, they would have been culled. Yeah. Uh, That's dark. But yeah, this was a really lovely scene. I love when the elder makes the offer of a lullaby and Saru's like, Yes, yes, I would. Like, I would like a lullaby. And it was just a lovely scene. And the elder puts his hand on the back of Saru's head. And I just, oh, poor Saru. Yeah. It was really sweet. I love that part, too, especially since previous to that, when they approached the elder, the elder said, would you like a story? 
And Saru's like, oh, no, Elder, but thank you. And I was like, oh, I bet Saru would love to hear a story. So when the lullaby came, I was like, oh, there, there's the moment. That's that's the thing that he needed. But also the, just exploring that area and finding this drawing of a family. And it says Sakal. And he figures out that, you know, that is the name of this child. And the name means a beloved gift. It's, it's something they give to someone that's a child that is theirs, ending the suffering of, you know, the family or whoever else is involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really sweet for sure. So then we go to the fortress where it, where Sakal runs to hide. We find that from the elder. That's that's where he goes when he's scared. It's almost like he's going to his room or to his treehouse or something. You know, when you think of a child running away somewhere to feel safe. And this was after Sakal's conversation with Burnham when she was asking him about exits, you know, where are their exits? And he was just like, no, the outside, the outside. And he goes running off. By the way, the fortress I thought looked cool from the outside. <laughs> Not from the outside, but from the outside of the fortress. Looked really cool. Actually, this would be kind of good episode to watch on a Halloween. It's not really spooky or that scary, but it's got some elements to it. The one thing I want to say is it was the uh, what stood in for the fortress, not the exterior scenes, but the interior. I was the Kingston Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario. I noticed they were kind of posting about how proud they were to be in a Star Trek episode a few days ago, so... That was uh, kind of cool. Oh, that is cool. Because I just figured that was maybe a set because I was just impressed with the set. So they actually went on location somewhere. That's cool. But yeah, we also learned that there's these totems that Sakal builds to help protect him from the monster. We learned that from the stories from the Elder. This is really cool because uh, Saru says the all-seeing eye has become a, a protection totem or whatever so these totems a thousand years later are based on presumably those huge monoliths that the baul used to control the uh kelpian villages because he referred to those as the all-seeing eye yeah that's kind of neat like how something that saru personally experienced in his lifetime now he gets to see almost a thousand years later what that has morphed into in someone's society. I, I would love to imagine, like, what do we take for granted nowadays that a thousand years from now will be some legendary thing that, that just represents something. That's a cool thought, too. And it reminds me also when they were talking to the elder that he only he doesn't just tell stories about the Kelpian, but the Baul. Now I'm starting to wonder, is this creature, this monster... It's from the stories of a sea creature or whatever. Is this possibly also could be a bowel creature? I don't know. I didn't think of it at the time. I was just now thinking of yeah. that through now. Probably not. Could be. It feels more like a like a mythological creature from their lore, like their history kind of thing. Which made me wonder if it was a bowel mythological creature of some type. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It, it seemed like Saru was familiar with it in Kelpian society, though. So, I don't know. Well, we are told that he must face his deepest fear or he will remain in this place. And when I listened to that a second time, when the elder says he must face the fear or remain, he will remain in this place. I thought, why couldn't he leave the ship if he doesn't face the fear? And I realized, well, he doesn't say he has to, it will prevent him from leaving a physical environment. It would mean that he will remain in this place, meaning maybe the place that he mentally is in, not physically in. 
Maybe. I, I did feel like it was, it, it's a test, right? Like this whole thing is for his education. My thinking was, this is the final test to show that you're ready to leave and face the real world because the real world is really scary and dangerous and, and you have to have this courage to, to be able to face it. So that was kind of my thinking was, you know, when they say he won't be able, he's not allowed to leave until he faces this creature and, you know, the program says, okay, he's ready. Now we'll show you the exit or whatever. Right. Which I think is both of kind of what you're saying and what I'm saying mm-hmm. is like, I thought physically, yeah, he's not allowed to leave, but to leave this place, meaning this place that he is emotionally, he can't leave until he resolves that. So it's kind of both. But then what is going on when he does face the creature? Saru sings him the lullaby and he just kind of like, you know, kind of screams and freaks out and the creature runs away. And there's this disturbance then that is projected out that even destabilizes Discovery's dilithium for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then they start realizing this may have been the cause of the burn. Sakal could be the cause of the burn. Do you think this child, this one individual, could have caused all this in this manner? It sounds like that's that's what they're saying. So apparently, and, and the explanation they give is, is a little kind of weird, but... They say that because he's adapted so much to the dilithium planet and the radiation or something, it's kind of become a part of him or something. This tantrum he has kind of affects it and sends out that shockwave and and that possibly caused the burn. I, I don't know. I mean, this is something that we've had this season kind of building to this explanation. And I'm not, I need to know more about this before I'm kind of on board because I don't really get it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Maybe we're not so really supposed to get it yet. But it just seems like a, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's not anything close to what I would think that mm-hmm. would cause the burn. That this one individual, this helpless individual who's still pretty much a child, just has a freak out moment in a nebula of dilithium that can cause this explosion of dilithium and other ships across the universe. It's just, it's really strange, but I'm sure we'll get more information on that that yeah. would make more sense so it de- destabilizes the dilithium making it inert is is what the original burn was which caused the ships that were using it to regulate their warp cores their warp cores exploded kind of thing so right yeah so mm, interesting we'll find out more so let's talk about some other things in here too that uh, we've kind of lightly touched on or didn't touch on but Colbert, I thought this was an interesting episode for him, and I'm waiting to see how this continues on in the next couple of episodes. So earlier in the episode, when he decides he's going to join the party to go onto the ship, Stamets is freaking out. Like, you know, you can't go. I've already lost you once, and I don't want to lose you again, and this, you know, da 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 And Colbert says, I've got to, I got to do it for me. You know, I'm still finding my place. And he's like, you know, everything he's been through, whatever that individual on this other ship is going through, he might be able to help them because he's been there. He's been isolated and alone and trying to find his way. And so not only is he wanting to help this individual, but I think he thinks the situation of helping this person will help him. Yeah, I I thought this was interesting. I, you know, sometimes I get a little with the, with a bit of the drawn out, like, oh, I have my own personal reasons for doing the thing and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, but you're also just, you know, the medical officer and you need to 
go do your duty on this away team. (laughs) You know, putting that aside, you know, I I do like Culber and I I really like the insights into his character and how he thinks. Uh, And, you know, Stamets is being a little bit of a mother hen there. I I, I did like that scene for sure. But then at the end of this episode, Culber decides to stay behind when he doesn't really need to, but he feels like he can help Sakal through whatever he's going through and stay behind with Saru, Mm -hmm. which I also thought was kind of interesting too, that, you know, you have a party of three there and only one's going to go back and the other two are going to remain knowing that they could die because of radiation poisoning. I feel like, you know, early in the season, Culber called Burnham a responsibility hoarder. And I think he just wants in on that action. He wants to hoard some responsibility for himself. I hadn't thought about that, but that's interesting too. But yeah, I'm curious to see where we go with Colbert in the next episode or the, and the one maybe even after that, wherever they take that story. But we have to get back. Well, I don't know. Okay, now I'm starting to question things because we we're talking about Saru earlier. Is this the end of Colbert and Saru? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't I don't think just for the simple fact they I don't think they'll kill Culber again. I don't think they'll do that. Saru, maybe, maybe this is I, I feel like it's not, though. I'm with you. I'd say I don't know if they would kill Culber again. No, like they definitely said. won't do that. And then the popular character of Saru would be hard to swallow, too. I can't mm-hmm. imagine them doing that either, but I don't know. I mean, you never know what they could do. I didn't have those thoughts until we were just talking. And I was like, oh, wait, gosh, please tell me. That's not what they're setting up, are they? Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they need to get back soon. This Discovery needs to get back soon to save them from radiation poison. They'll die. I'm like, well, of course, they'll get them back. They'll get them back. But now I'm starting to question that. Well, I mean, Adira did smuggle them the the super powerful anti-radiation meds that I'm sure will help them for quite a while now. (laughs) Exactly. Which, you know, when Culver said he's going to stay behind, he didn't know that was coming. So he could have like been dying in about 10 minutes if that wasn't the case. That seemed wild to me, but okay. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on Adira going down the planet. So they get on the ship, on book ship, and they beam over. And again, you know, everybody likes to go rogue on Discovery at some point. So <laughs> Adira's doing that. And they go down to give the medicine to them. And of course, we don't see what happens after they beam over. Of course, that's going to come into play later. But then we see how Adira is dealing with the absence of Grey. And now Gray appears and Gray says, hey, I just needed time. You know, this is an unusual situation for me. And, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I don't know how to be in this environment. Like you, Adira, are physically around people and I'm still dealing with how I can't interact and I can't be in here and I feel stuck and I'm trying to figure things out. And Adira just seems to be like, yeah, okay, I get it. But you can tell that they don't like it. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a tough scene because I get the impression I guess Grey does exist more apart from Adira than I kind of thought before. And he really seems to have his own kind of intention and will and that sort of thing, which I don't know. I still don't know what this is exactly, why he appears like that. But uh, yeah, Adira is definitely hurt by by Gray's choices, and it's, it's kind of sad to see. I'm assuming there'll be more on this story in the future as well. Yeah, just in the last couple of episodes, we're getting these little bits of 
Adira and Gray storyline. And I'm just waiting to see where we're getting a little more of that. And it may be in the next episode or two, because mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how that goes. And why Adira felt that they had to go now and not tell anybody and just go and bring the medicine. I don't know why Adira didn't feel like that they could go to Tilly or whoever and say, hey, let me take the medicine. But decided, mm-hmm. I guess decided that no one was going to let them go. And roping Jet Reno into their plan as well, I thought was... Uh... We get to see a little bit of Jet because of that. But I also got to say, it was just so nice to see Ian Alexander again after an absence for a while, too. So, yes, just good to see Gray. (laughs) So let's talk about Bookship real quick, because we mentioned that a couple of times. So Book uses his ship to go into the nebula initially to find the location of this Kelpian Starfleet Federation ship. And send the coordinates back to Discovery. But then Book is able to take his ship a second time to go in. So he's got this very capable ship that, you know, can change his shapes and everything. He had two heroic moments, in a sense, in this episode. And then he was able to beam Burnham back from the ship. So what do you think about Book in this episode? I like Book in this episode. I think he's, again, as he said before, he's making himself useful, right? So, yeah, I think he's a great asset for Discovery. I love that he gets his kind of moments in this episode and including rescuing Burnham right at the end. And now I assume that he and Burnham are going to be doing some stuff to retake Discovery in the next episode because they're cut off and we haven't gotten to Discovery's capture yet, but... Uh, Yeah, I I think he has some really nice moments in this episode. Yeah, because when Book and Burnham are on the ship and they're getting back to Discovery, of course, we see a Cirrus ship there with Discovery with all these tentacles attached to it. And she has now captured Discovery and used the spore drive to take off somewhere towards Federation space. And they're just gone. And Burnham's like, no, we were too late. They're gone. Which then, of course, that's part of the cliffhanger, which we've got several in here of what's going to happen with Saru and Colbert, what's now going to happen with Book and Burnham? How are they going to get to Discovery? And, oh, what's going to happen with Discovery? And, oh, what about, you know, the burn? What's going on there? There's a lot of what ifs, what ifs, you know, what's going to happen in this episode. So going to that whole s- storyline with Tilly as captain and Asira on here, what do you think about all that? Oh, man, this is probably my favorite part of the episode is Tilly facing off against Osira. And Tilly is just killing it or killing it. I don't know. But yeah, she's just, (laughs) oh, man, she was so good. I loved uh, Osira. First of all, I I really liked Osira in this episode more so than her first appearance. I think she was very menacing and very well played in this episode and her trying to unnerve Tilly and get under her skin, I thought was really effective. Like, you know, saying all those things, like if someone had said that to me, I would be affected and like have a hard time coming back from that. But Tilly just, you know, right back in her face, not frothing at the mouth and being all aggressive or anything, but just, you know, being that commanding presence and, being mature and throwing it right back at her, you know, using the kind of more adult version of, I know you are, but what am I? 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> right. That was really good. Yeah, and her use of Freud to Osira, and you know, mm-hmm. she's like, "You're not going to get this ship, the spore drive, this nothing. Not now, not ever." Yeah, and she's just very cool about it. She's not overdoing it. She's just being very confident and secure. And it's like, look, I'm Tilly. I'm the captain. You're a joke. I'm doing my thing. You're just a bother. Get out of here. You're a little gnat to me. It's almost like that's how it came across. I was like, yeah, you go, Tilly. You rub that metal burr under the left arm of the chair. (laughs) (laughs) I thought also just as an aside regarding that on the chair, I thought that was really great because like, I don't know, I just really connected to that because I think we've all had some little thing like on a chair or on your desk or something that I I don't know. I don't know why, but that just really struck a chord with me on like, I'm sure I've done something like that in my life where there was some little imperfection somewhere that you just kind of fiddle with, with your finger when you're nervous or something like that. Right. Yeah. I can't be the only one. (laughs) Yeah. I tend to do that with, with pens sometimes, you know, but Mm -hmm. I used to, and I don't work in an office as much as I used to, but I used to keep a baseball on my desk because of Cisco uh-huh. and I would pick up the baseball and I'd roll around in my hands if I was a little nervous or t- And sometimes I just did just to play with it. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you have something like that, that you just kind of have to hold on to. I guess that's why they have those little squeezy things like people's desks, and <laughs> little stress, stress balls. balls. Yeah. I, yeah. So, I mean, the whole Tilly thing, I loved it too. I mean, this is one of the reasons I saved it kind of towards the end of this episode or really, Get on to that at the end here. And then the Discovery Cloaks. That was mm. a nice little thing there, too. Yeah, that was something that like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought of that, but of course it would. Yeah, I know. I thought that, too. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, this is, you know, hundreds of years later, cloaking technology is probably allowed now and very convenient. And yeah, why not? So now we can de- see Discovery using a cloaking device. And, you know, also thinking about the bridge scenes. I'm getting to a point now that I want to do a drinking game when I watch Discovery, when you see the bridge crew all give their side glances at each other. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) They do a lot of that. I'm assuming you're you're referring to when Tilly says she'll destroy Discovery, she'll set the (laughs) auto-destruct. I thought that was an interesting scene because, of course, as we know, Discovery won't allow herself to be blown up because of the sphere data. So it's a bit of an empty threat. But it is, you know, Osara, of course, doesn't know that the sphere data and the whole like Zora computer thing. I'm wondering if we're going to see that kind of surface in the next episode, because I can't imagine she's happy about Zora take or sorry, excuse me, Osira taking over the ship. I bet you there's yeah. something there. Something's going to happen there. I think. Yeah. Well, Discovery protect itself. Yeah. From Osira. Because yeah. we know it cares about the crew, too. So, And about the self-destruct, my wife said, wait a second, when Osira got on the bridge, she's like, well, come on, Tilly. What about the self-destruct? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing that? But to your point, she probably can't. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that covers most of it. I'm sure there's a, other little things in there, like grudge and all that, that we haven't touched on, but you know, <laughs> he was in this episode. So, Dan, what are your final thoughts on this episode? I really enjoyed this episode. I think, you know, a lot of the the stuff with Tilly was probably my favorite, but I really enjoyed the Burnham, Culber, Saru bits on the planet. Seeing Saru, of course, out of the makeup, that was just a high point and just what an amazing actor. I'm continually blown away by his acting uh, and, and 
the acting of I think most of the cast as well is incredible. This is just a really great group of people they've got here. Like you said, we didn't really talk about Grudge, but she definitely makes her presence known in the episode. I kind of forgot about that till you mentioned her. Uh, great to see her. That is one huge cat. Yes. I think someone in our Positively Trek discussion group was guessing that possibly Grudge was pregnant because of those sick bay scenes, but that had nothing to do with that, unfortunately. So uh, there's no soap opera Grudge pregnancy storyline <laughs> coming on Discovery. But uh, yeah, I'm really curious. The one thing, of course, in this episode that I, the biggest unknowns are the whole burn thing and how this kid, this child caused the burn. I, I'm still not 100% clear on that, but I'm hoping that gets a little bit more cleared up in episodes to come. And the whole cliffhanger ending, really interesting. These, I think, final two episodes of Discovery coming up are going to be a lot of questions answered and and situations to resolve here. So yeah, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, I would have to give it one really cool set of MC Escher stairs uh, that, you know, is probably some kind of test. Everything you said is exactly what I was thinking or what I would say. It's just, but you always say it better than I do. So yeah, what Dan just said. But yeah, I love this episode. I really think that once the season ends, and we move on to other seasons. If you ever want to sit there and watch an episode of Discovery from this end of season, you have to watch this one and the next two. I have a feeling, it's like when you watch The Best of Both Worlds. You watch one and two, and hmm. maybe Family right after that. In this case, I feel like this is part one of three in this uh, story arc. So, I mean, I'm interested to see how this plays out, how the burn is explained. Again, like you, I really enjoy the Tilly scenes. But I really did enjoy our three crew members on the ship in that hollow environment, looking different, seeing that environment that was really interesting to look at. So I'm going to give this, you know, this episode deserves a really sharp burr under the hmm. the seat. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's polished very well. So Dan, when people want to discuss discovery with you, where can they find you? Well, as long as it's not before uh, I get to see the episode, you can tweet to me at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, just Star Trek backwards. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions and uh, Instagram, Kurtrats47. And all of, yeah, pretty much anywhere you search for Kurtrats, that's probably me. Probably. And if it's not, I want to know who that is. Some imposter on a holodeck <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on Instagram at Admiral Rex and you can find us, the show on Twitter at positively track on Twitter, of course, and on Instagram at positively track. And you can look for us on Facebook. We have a discussion group asked to come in. We'll let you in, have great discussions with our other listeners. And uh, of course you can also send us an email at positively track at gmail.com. So thanks everyone for listening and until next time, live long and prosper and stay positive.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.